So I'm going to pick up again where we left off. Um, read again our uh, key scripture, our theme scripture, if you like, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to launch out from there. So in First Peter chapter uh, two, verse nine, it says, "But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him." who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Aren't you glad that God called us out of darkness, out of spiritual darkness, into his marvelous light? Uh, we're no longer searching. We found the truth. Uh, the truth is not a concept. Uh, the truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, this morning I want to pick up, in fact I said I will pray, so let's do that right now and trust God to speak to us again this morning. Heavenly Father, as we once again approach the time of the reading, the proclamation of the word, we thank you Lord that you're present by the power of your spirit. We thank you Lord God that the spirit of truth is in the house today uh, to impress truth upon our hearts to give us insights and revelation, uh, and Lord, to fill the gaps that we might have in our understanding. Lord, that we have a greater working knowledge of the Scriptures. And we thank you, Lord God, that we are changing and that we are transformed as our minds are being renewed. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I was just in Exodus again, uh, reading those Scriptures where the tabernacle of Moses was constructed. And of course, we said that later on, that thing was then replaced by the temple of uh, Solomon. Uh, in fact, when Jesus came, that was the temple of Herod. So there's the whole journey there. And when God spoke to the people uh, after he brought him out of Egypt on Mount Sinai, the place where all of these instructions were given, God said to them, he says, if you keep my covenant, he says, you're going to be my special people. He says, you, you're going to be a nation of priests, he said, and uh, and of course, what do priests do? Well, priests minister to the Lord. And God says, uh, uh, you know, I've called you out from amongst all the people in the earth. You're going to be my special people. Uh, and of course, that was God's plan for the Jewish people. And uh, But now we have New Testament. And right here, God is speaking to the believers now, to the Christians, no matter what nation they come from. God's making up a new nation whose citizenship is from heaven. And he says, you are now my chosen generation. You are now my royal priesthood. Well, unless we know what priesthood means, unless we go back into the Old Testament and find out what the priests did, we have no comprehension of what God expects from us. Can you see that? And he says, you are now, uh, he says, God's holy nation, you're God's special people, and we are here to proclaim God's praises uh, because he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So very quickly, uh, I want to just recap on three main points on where we have been, uh, and then I want to look at some, some other peripheral truths surrounding that whole truth of our worship journey and everything. And really been thinking about this is like this deal is endless. God's riches are unsearchable. And in terms of just different facets of truth, um, just absolutely wonderful. I really encourage you, unless you're on a on a regular Bible reading plane and you're already maxed out, I really encourage you to read Exodus in the first, like the first first 30 to 35 chapters, the whole journey of them coming out of Egypt, coming to Mount Sinai, or what the Bible also calls the mountain of God, where the law was given and all the instructions were given regarding the tabernacle of Moses and all the furniture and all the different parts to it. It really is quite fascinating. So far, we've said that the primary purpose of every believer is to worship God. Above everything else, we are called to worship God. Secondly, we talked about the destination of our worship journey is the presence of God. On the very first or second Sunday, we said that worship is not a goal. Um, worship is not our destination. Worship is a journey. We are journeying along in worship. Even as we worship this morning, like from when we started the service, some of the songs that we sang and we, we journey along. We don't journey physically, but we journey in the realm of the Spirit. We are approaching the presence of God. And really, every worship service, every experience of worship in God has got a destination in mind, and that destination is the presence of God. Um, what the Bible also calls the glory of God. The glory and the presence of God is synonymous, uh, if you like. Then we said that the tabernacle of Moses shows us the pattern of worship for both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they physically moved through those parts 
uh, in the gates and the outer court and the holy place and the holy of holies. In the New Testament, we spiritually move through that, if you like, because the Bible tells us there is such a deal set up in heaven and we should know what that looks like and, and, and so forth. So that's where we've been so far. And this morning I want to pick up on the presence and the glory of God that was right there in the inside the tabernacle uh, called uh, on the, in, the, in the back part of that uh, tent, if you like, called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. In fact, this is sometimes uh, the student of the Bible can get a little bit confused that the same thing is known by different terms. And it's like now it says Holy of Holies and now it's the holiest of all. And like, uh, what's the difference between the two? None there. Both terms refer to the same thing. All right, let me pick up from Exodus 25. Read uh, uh, four or five verses right there from verse 17. God speaking to Moses, he says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Have you remember we just sang about the mercy seat here this morning? You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherub of gold. Cherub is just uh, the angelic beings of a high order, if you like. Um, uh, two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it uh, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall, shall stretch out their wings above, uh, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face each other. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall uh, put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. The testimony specifically referred to the uh, Ten Commandments that were chiseled on two tablets of stone. Uh, verse 22, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherub, which are on top of the, te of the ark of the testimony, uh, about everything that I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Again, we've got two, two names for the same thing. The Ark of the Testimony and the Ark of the Covenant is the same thing. All right. So we've got some images there that we can put up of the Ark, uh, just so we can get an, an idea in regards to the artist's uh, impression. Uh, it, is a, it was a wooden chest that was overlaid with gold inside and out. Uh, there were four rings around it with poles going through it. Uh, the poles were again made of wood overlaid with gold. The priests were not to touch the ark, but they were supposed to pick this thing up by the poles. The poles were in there permanently and carried the thing uh, uh, through, the, through, through the wilderness uh, en route into the promised land. Um, when the priests walked around Jericho uh, for seven days, this is what they carried. Um, and for some of you that have seen the, the movie uh, called the, uh, the, the Lost Ark or something, uh, it's nothing like it, okay? So don't get confused. Once Hollywood gets its smutty hands on it, it messes everything up, all right? So forget that. Let's come back to Bible truth. And this is what the deal looked like, similar to that. Uh, in fact, there's another uh, image there. Can we throw up the other one as well, uh, if that's possible? And if not, don't worry about it. So <laughs> wooden uh, chest overlaid with gold. There was a plate at the top made of pure gold. That was called the mercy seat, even though all we see is one box. The top plate had a separate name. That was called the mercy seat. Uh, now, don't get confused with the term seat. It wasn't so much a seat. It was just a gold plate on which those two uh, angelic beings were mounted, and they had their, their wings stretched out. Uh, in fact, the wings really, I believe, went further. And in fact, in, uh, in the Temple of Solomon, the wings went from side to side in the room, just stretching right across. And the Bible says that their faces were towards the mercy seat, so they were looking down. Uh, that was kind of the deal. So uh, the size of this thing would have been about a meter long, just over a meter, about half a meter wide and half a meter tall. So to get a bit of an understanding in regards to the size of it. All right. Uh, so that Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, as it's called here, was inside the tabernacle, specifically in the second room. Uh, remember, the, ark, uh, the uh, tabernacle was divided off into two rooms, the front room and the back room. The front room was called the Holy Place, and the back room was called the Holy of Holies. 
the two rooms were divided off with the curtain. Uh, that was the curtain that was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. Um, and uh, so that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, the Ark of the Covenant uh, with the mercy seat on it and these two angelic beings, that's all there was as far as physical items was concerned in that room. Um, and uh, I want to read um, from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, where God says, For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. All right, this is significant. God says, I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So God wasn't sitting on the Ark of the Covenant. He wasn't sitting on the mercy seat because, as I said, the, the word seat is a little bit, uh, a little bit misleading. Um, in fact, some translations of the Bible called it the atonement uh, plate or the atonement cover. Uh, King James and New King James calls it the uh, mercy seat. All right. So the Holy of Holies, um, in fact, let me back up. The tabernacle of Moses, the whole deal was basically the place where God would manifest his presence, where God would manifest his glory. Um, God's everywhere, as we know, but that's where God manifests his presence so it was visible. Um, the the uh, tabernacle was set up right in the middle of the camp where Israel camped in the shape of a cross in the wilderness and uh, specifically uh, inside uh, that place where God manifests his presence, his presence. That was also the place and the focus of worship. Um, and, uh, you know, nowadays... Uh, we don't worship in any specific direction, east, west, or north. It doesn't matter. God is worshipped in the spirit now. But for them, that was the focus, the physical focus of their worship. And it was also a place where sacrifices were offered. Now, let me read from Exodus 25, verse 21, uh, to put, put a bit more meaning on this whole thing here. Uh, God says in verse 21, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. We just saw that before, that golden plate that was on top of that wooden chest. He says, put it on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Um, this already said, that was the Ten Commandments. Verse 22, and there I will meet with you. Everybody say there. All right. So God says, don't, not anywhere, but God says there. So in other words, God referred to a specific place where he was to meet uh, with them, and in fact, uh, in my studies, I'm like having a, a kind of a new understanding. It appears to me, and there's no chapter and verse for this, it appears to me that when the Bible says that only the high priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, uh, and only once a year, it appears to me that that excluded Moses, so that Moses was able to come and go as he pleased. Now, I haven't got chapter and verse for that, and I could be wrong, but that's the perception that I'm getting as I'm, as I'm studying this, which is like a new thought. I hadn't seen that before. Because right there, when God spoke to Moses up on the mountain, uh, God's speaking to Moses, and God says to Moses, there I will meet with you. Now, in a distant sense, that's where God met with all of Israel as they came to worship God. But in a specific sense, God, God says to Moses, I will meet with you there. And... Uh, he says, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherub on which the ark of the testimony, uh, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything that I will uh, give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Now again, the Holy of Holies, which was that room inside the tabernacle of Moses, was the place where God will meet with Moses and God would speak with Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to meet with God. And I want God to speak to me. Sometimes people say, well, how would you get God to speak to you? How would you hear God? Well, this will give us some understanding in regards to where we can meet God. Now, of course, God's on the inside of us. And we carry the presence of God around with us. And we'll have a look at that very shortly as well. But that still does not substitute the manifest presence of God where we can come into the manifest presence of God, and we know we're in the presence of God, we can feel God, we can sense God, uh, where we know when we've walked away, we'd say, wow, we had an encounter with God today. 
How many know what I'm talking about? We had an encounter with God today. Um, sadly, for many people, this is somewhat of a rare occurrence. God wants it to be a regular occurrence. All right? Uh, and uh, so uh, God referred to the physical location where he would meet with Moses and speak with, with him. Now, of course, uh, we read through um, the book of Exodus there, we will find out that, uh, that uh, Moses had a tent of his own, um, and that was called the tent of meeting, where God came down uh, in the cloud and stood outside the door, and Moses was inside, and God was speaking to Moses face to face. When Moses was up on the mountain, God appeared to him up there and spoke to him and gave him not only the Ten Commandments, but all the instructions in regards to the tabernacle of Moses, all the measurements, all the, uh, all the items that were to be constructed, uh, the materials, the layout, the whole deal. Uh, and that was like if you, how things progress along the way. But now that the tabernacle is built, God, God says to Moses, now I will meet with you there. God says, forget the mountain, forget your own tent. He says, I will meet with you there. All right, and uh, just as a as a point of explanation, the Holy of Holies is a type or a shadow of our recreated spirit. In the New Testament, we no longer rely on one physical location to meet with God, but we meet with Him in the realm of the Spirit. Everybody say in the realm of the Spirit, okay? And He speaks to us through our spirit. Um, as I say, we got the, the Old Testament truth and then the New Testament application of it all. And that tabernacle of Moses, we've already said, with the outer court, with the fence going around it, uh, then the holy place and the holy of holies, which were those three areas, refers to our body, our soul, and our spirit. In the New Testament, God no longer dwells in buildings made by hands. God dwells inside every believer. Um, and um, when God says to Moses in the Holy of Holies, there I will speak with you, God speaks to you through your spirit and in your spirit. And if we are in tune with our own spirit and we've learned to quieten down our soul with all the busyness that's going on, we can hear God. Uh, and uh, God doesn't always speak in words, uh, but God speaks in pictures and in images. Um, and with impressions. Uh, Yongi Cho used to teach us, he says that the language of the Holy Spirit is visions and dreams. Um, and visions, you will note, is in many respects pictures that we see. Uh, of course, there can be words, uh, and we're not excluding words, but sometimes it's impressions. The Bible speaks of an inner witness. Where is our inner witness? It's in our spirit. God says, there I will speak with you. So if you like, that's New Testament application of what we're learning from the Old Testament. I'm not in any way trying to get everybody to go back to the Old Testament. We're not about to start a new building project and rebuild the tabernacle of Moses. There's no way we need to do that, all right? Uh, and so we just need to understand this deal and understand the New Testament application. And in terms of this whole aspect of God living in our spirit and speaking to our spirit, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, uh, through to verse 16, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by, by whom we cry, uh, cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Um, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who lives inside our, our recreated spirit, bears witness with our spirit. And you know, the old Pentecostal used to say, I've got a witness in my spirit that so and so and this and this and that and such and such is meant to happen. I've got a witness in my spirit. So what they're saying is, I'm knowing something in my Noah. Everybody's got a Noah on the inside of them. It's called our spirit. That's where God dwells. That's where God speaks to us. And as I said, if we have learned to get in touch and in tune with our spirit, we quieten down our mind, then the truth that God places into our spirit spills over into our mind. We suddenly have a, a revelation. It's like there's suddenly an illumination taking place but it starts in our spirit. The Bible says the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. And um, 
So that's where God illuminates us and gives us understanding. So with all of that understanding then, let's talk about the tabernacle pattern and what it means to us in the New Testament. Um, because sometimes Christians uh, do move back into the Old Testament uh, and want to live there. <laughs> That's not what we do. We do. There's a dividing line. We don't, we don't get past, past Matthew. Uh, we don't want to get back into Malachi and over into, into Exodus. Uh, uh, as I said, there's no need for that. Um, and, you know, sometimes Christians insist on meeting on a Saturday, uh, which was the, uh, the, the Jewish Sabbath day. Uh, and we say, no, uh, that's all been superseded by the Christian, uh, at the day of the Lord called the Sunday. Uh, and as I said, there's many nuances where sometimes people want to move back into the old. Uh, we don't want to move into the old. We just want to understand the old to unlock for us uh, the new much better. So here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, uh, it, we have already read the scripture. I want to bring them out again in a different kind of uh, um, facet here. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What is the holiest? That's called the Holy of Holies, uh, which was the second part of that tabernacle. So that's what he's referring to. He says, Having boldness to enter the holiest uh, by the blood of Jesus. So we no longer come with the, with the, with the uh, blood of lambs and of bulls and of goats, but we come by the blood of Jesus. All right? Uh, and we come with boldness. Now, that, that's new. That is different. When the writer of Hebrews spoke to the Hebrew Christians, that thought of coming with boldness would have blown them away. Because in the Old Testament, the high priest never came with boldness. He came with fear and trepidation. Like, am I going to make it in there and back out again alive? If I've done something wrong, I'm die. God's warned me. If I don't follow the whole pattern of sacrificing, making atonement for my own sins first, uh, and washing myself at the, at the labor, which was all laid out, and then going into the holy place and through into the holy of holies, I'm dead meat. All right? Uh, so that was fear and trepidation. New Testament says, let us come boldly. That is an entirely uh, radical thought. It isn't for many Christians because many Christians don't understand the old uh, and, and, and how the, the, the old uh, is so different from the new. Um, by a new and living way, verse 20. The word new there uh, is, a, is an unusual word in the sense that whilst it says new, it speaks about not so much as in a new gadget that you might buy that is brand new, but it speaks about a newly sacrificed Sacrifice, newly slaughtered, uh, is, is the literal translation from that Greek word there, by a new, uh, newly slaughtered, though living way. Uh, and so uh, the Old Testament um, and the, the tabernacle was the old pattern, if you like. We're now no longer coming uh, through the lamb, uh, blood of lambs and bulls and goats and so forth, but we come in a new and in a living way. Um, he says, which he has consecrated for us. He, of course, being referenced to Jesus, um, uh, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is uh, his flesh. That veil was that thick curtain that was hanging between the two rooms in the tabernacle and to press on right through. Um, and having a high priest over the house of God. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament in the tabernacle was Aaron. He was the high priest, and when he died, uh, he was uh, superseded by his sons and so forth. And the, the, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, they just always had a successor. When the old guy died, a new guy just stepped into place. The house of God here is reference to the tabernacle in heaven that's only got one high priest. He's called the great high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. He will never be replaced, all right, because the Bible says he ever lives. Of course, he lives forever, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Um, and again, having that understanding that the high priest, uh, when he approached the presence of God, he had 12 uh, precious stones on a breastplate representing the whole nation of Israel. And when he approached the presence of God, he did so on behalf of the nation. He made intercession uh, for the nation of Israel, and once a year he made atonement. When Jesus approached uh, God with his own blood, he had, the, he had the people of the whole world on, on, on his heart, if you like, and makes intercession for everybody. And in fact, he says he ever lives to make intercession for us. 
is again um, an application in the New Testament of what the Old Testament high priest did. Um, so we can see the, the correlation there, the carrying across from the old into the new. Uh, so verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance. Full assurance or full confidence uh, is New Testament. They weren't confident in the Old Testament because when God blew away those two uh, boys, uh, those two, the high priest's sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, remember, that offered strange, strange fire, that was it. Like everybody else is suddenly on their best behavior. We're not going to be sloppy when we approach God. It's going to be absolutely spot on because we don't want to die. <laughs> Old Testament, fear and trepidation. New Testament, it says, come with full assurance. All right, God's not going to strike out in the New Testament. As I said, that was kind of Old Testament just to teach these guys some lessons. And, um, and there was some sort of other aspects to it that uh, uh, God didn't just have a bad day and decided to slam a couple of boys. I mean, they were told. They were told exactly what to do, and they did exactly the opposite. Uh, in the very center of where God says, this is where I'm going to place my name. This is where we're going to have worship now. This is going to be the starting point of a new thing, and the boys messed it all up. And so um, God did away with those two boys, and suddenly everybody's on their best behavior. Okay, uh, so let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Um, having our hearts sprinkled, Old Testament language. When the high priest will come with blood uh, that was uh, uh, brought from the sacrifice that was just killed outside, he brought the blood in some sort of a container, he will come in through the holy place into the holy of holies and sprinkle the blood in the, ho in the holy of holies, which represents your spirit and my spirit. Your conscience is a part of your spirit. And uh, the Bible says here in Hebrews, giving us that understanding that the New Testament application is that our spirits, our conscience has been sprinkled with blood. Um, do, do you see that? Um, it's fascinating how Old Testament and New Testament kind of ties together and Old Testament in many respects uh, giving us a greater understanding of a New, Test New Testament truth here. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Bodies washed, what is that reference to? That was reference to the bronze laver, that bowl that was outside the tent that was filled with water where the priests had to wash their feet, wash their hands, and look themselves in the mirror with the reflection that if there's anything that wasn't right, they had to fix themselves up before they come into the presence of God. All right? And so that's the understanding there. So just very briefly, to contrast again the old from the new, um, or the new from the old. First of all, in the New Testament, it's the blood of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, as opposed to Old Testament, which was the blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. All right? In the New Testament, we come with boldness and confidence. In the Old Testament, they came with fear and trepidation. It is good to have a fear of God in the New Testament. But the fear of God is not so much a being afraid that we're going to be struck dead, but it is a healthy respect that we do things right, not because God might clobber us, but because we've got such a respect for God that we do it right because it's just the right thing to do. The Bible says it is by the fear of the Lord that men depart from evil. Uh, so the fear of the Lord is a, is a good thing. In the New Testament, it's Jesus, the great high priest. In the Old Testament, it was Aaron, the high priest. In the New Testament, it tells us that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But it tells us that the law came by Moses. Um, the law. And of course, as far as the law is concerned, everybody's always guilty. Nobody ever fulfilled the law completely, except Jesus Christ. The rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be you know, saved and so forth? And because Jesus spoke to him about the law, he says, I've done all of these things from my youth. Uh, well, he hasn't. Everybody's broken the law. Somewhere, somehow. Even if we only break one, one aspect of the law, the whole law is broken. 
So whilst the Ten Commandments are good to give us, if you like, a standard for God, we no longer live by the Ten Commandments. We live by the royal law of love, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang the, all the, the, the law and, and, and all the commandments and all the prophets, Jesus told us. So grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, remember the word grace. We're moving into something uh, very shortly. Then the New Testament is called the ministry of the Spirit, the Old Testament is called the ministry of death. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant was unable to give new life. It only pointed out the problem. Um, and so, and, and when the problem is pointed out, everybody is guilty. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came and he brought grace and truth. And then finally... And this is by no means an exhaustive list. The New Testament is called the ministry of righteousness. The Old Testament is called the ministry of condemnation. So I suggest to you, if you're living under a constant cloud of condemnation, maybe you haven't moved on into the New Testament. Because the New Testament is called the ministry of righteousness. Can you see that? Very important uh, to realize that we don't commit righteousness, we have been made righteous. If you get that truth, uh, into your spirit, it's going to make a radical difference to the way that you see yourself and your relationship with God. That you're no longer feeling the need to grovel into God's presence, as it were, uh, but that you can come boldly because we haven't committed righteousness, we have been made righteous. And because we have been made righteous and we are now called the righteousness of God in Christ, we make every effort to live righteously. But if we fail and we make a mistake, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we can still come boldly into the throne of God, uh, into the, uh, to the throne of grace. Praise God. I don't know if this helps you, but that really, that really excites me. Um, I want to... Read another Hebrew passage here from chapter 4, um, verse 14 through to verse 16. And it's still got all of that Old Testament understanding brought over into the New Testament. It says, Then seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let me just stop there. In the Old Testament, Aaron was the high priest. And Aaron hasn't passed through the heavens Aaron has passed through the tabernacle of Moses uh, to get to the presence of God that was manifest at that point in time. By the way, uh, there is a, another temple going to be built uh, in Jerusalem, physical temple, um, and uh, in the millennial reign of Christ, uh, all of that will be, will be done now. If, if a temple were to be built now in this dispensation and you worked your way through from the outer court into the holy place and push the curtain aside and move on into the holy of holies, would you find the presence of God in there? We would say, no, you would not. Because the curtain that was torn from top to bottom was not only to signify that man can now approach the presence of God without all of these barriers being in place, but furthermore, God got out and God now lives in the heart of men and of women that have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, so, um, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. One of the issues that was going on was that the Hebrew Christians, they were Jews, they were brought up under the Old Testament, then they got born again. They embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah, uh, the the Christ, the Deliverer, but somehow there was always that pullback under the old. Um, they were born again, but they thought that if we can only keep the Ten Commandments and keep the law, we're going to be made perfect. The Galatian Christians had exactly the same problem. Um, uh, further, uh, unlike uh, the Hebrew Christians, the Galatians weren't Jews uh, as such, but they thought after they got born again, they thought we now have to join the Jewish religion and keep all the Old Testament laws. And Paul says, not necessary. Don't go into the Old Testament. 
He says, God's finished with that. It is now New Testament. Um, and so he says, let us hold fast our confession. Uh, what does that mean? Well, in the first instance, it means that, that we are no longer coming to Aaron, the high priest, but we're coming to Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, and he's the apostle, uh, and he's the author and the finisher of our faith, um, and he's the one that's made the way of, of salvation. Um, moving on there, he says, Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, such as we are, yet without sin. And sometimes people slip into the Old Testament mold, say, oh, I've had some horrible thoughts. I can't go into the presence of God. I've been tempted. In fact, I might have even given way to temptation. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, look, it's okay. Our high priest fully understands. Jesus Christ was fully tempted in all points. Now, there's three temptations listed um, specifically how the devil came to tempt him, but Hebrews tells us that was only a summary statement of all the other stuff that Jesus was tempted with. Was Jesus tempted to give up? Yes, he would have been. Did he give up? No. Would Jesus have been tempted in the sexual area? Absolutely, because when it says that he was tempted in all points, yet without sin, it means he was tempted, but he didn't give way. So that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across to us. The look, he says, when you come into the presence of God and you remember all of this stuff that you might have done wrong or the bad thoughts that you had thought, remind yourself that you are the righteousness of God in Christ and still approach the presence of God boldly because we haven't committed righteousness, we have been made righteous. And that like changes the whole ballgame. All right? Um, that said, uh, if there's something that we've done wrong, we need to repent. And repentance and confession of sin cleanses us again from all unrighteousness, and then the way to the Father is open again. Uh, uh, so, um, verse 6, And we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us. Everybody say, let us. I had a count, and there is a dozen lettuces in Hebrews. I counted specifically. I thought, I keep on reading the same word here. It's like, there's 12 of them exactly. Let us be bold. Let us be confident. Let us, let, let us and there's 12 of them. I might preach on them one day, because they're all really good. Um, and so he says, let us therefore, therefore, Brother Hagen used to teach us, he says, when you read a therefore, you better back up and see what the therefore is there for. Let us therefore come boldly. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, and because he was in all points tempted such as we are, yet because he was without sin, we have sinned, but he was without sin, and because he was our substitute, let us therefore come boldly. I don't come into the presence of God on my own righteousness. I'm coming in the righteousness of Jesus. Let us therefore come boldly. Many Christians try their own righteousness. And the Bible says our own righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Isaiah tells us. Let us therefore come boldly. And I, I need to remind myself, like, you know, we get into prayer meeting, we get into praise and worship team, and it's like, oh, you know, there's some thoughts that weren't that good, and seen things I shouldn't have seen, and say things I shouldn't have said. And, and you know, there's, there can be that hesitation there. And we need to get right, climb right over that rubbish and remind us, ourselves, let us therefore come boldly. Therefore, because Jesus Christ, our high priest, has already been tempted in all of those points where we have failed, but he has not failed. Let us therefore come boldly. That is so cool. The mercy seat, and this is what I'm trying to lead up to. I've said all of that to say this. The mercy seat of the Old Testament was a type or a shadow of the throne of grace in the New Testament. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Now the Bible speaks of different thrones, 
different seats. The Bible speaks of the judgment seat of Christ that uses a different Greek word to the throne of grace. Um, and uh, the Bible speaks in the book of Revelation about the great white throne judgment on which God will sit to judge all the nations and all the people that have not received Jesus Christ. And then all of them will be thrown into hell and into the lake of fire along with the devil and with the false prophet. So don't anybody think that everybody uh, is a child of God and everybody's going to go to heaven. Only those that have surrendered their life to Jesus. Now what I'm trying to point out is there's different seats that the Bible speaks of. Here it speaks about a throne of grace as opposed to a throne of judgment. So what if I fail out here and it's now time again to worship God and uh, I'm sort of struggling a little bit because I've done something wrong, I've messed up, I said something I shouldn't have said and, and everything. And sure, the Bible very strongly speaks if we have sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, confession is basically to acknowledge that sin and to repent, and then he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Um, and then we walk right into the throne of God. And what are we going to find when we come to the throne of God? We will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. We're not going to find judgment. We're going to find mercy and grace. You know, sometimes different things get in the way. We call God Father, and um, we have earthly fathers. And um, <clears throat> when uh, we've done something wrong, our earthly fathers, and rightly so, had to deal with us a little bit. Uh, and when I grew up, there wasn't any anti-smacking laws. So I can assure you, I got a few during my early uh, years of life, and uh, it never hurt me. It just always helped me. Um, and so... We bring that understanding, when we have done wrong, we bring that understanding with us and we come to the throne of grace and we think it's got judgment written in brackets. When God says, come to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in brackets judgment. But it's not there. It's only there in our mentality. God doesn't judge. What we find when we approach the presence of God is pure love. Mercy. Um, Bible scholars who take everything apart, they say mercy relates to what's happened in the past. And that is covered by mercy. Well, actually, it's only covered by the... In fact, it's not just covered by the blood of Jesus, but it's been washed away. And grace to help, grace is referenced to now and for what we're going to be facing in the future. I don't know about you, but I need, I need plenty of grace right now to do those things that God's called me to do, to live the life that He's called me to live, and plenty of grace in the future. So I need to come to this throne all the time. Not just once a fortnight, not just once every once in a blue moon. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm reminded there's a church in the States that had a once in a blue moon church service, once in a blue moon, attracting those people that only go once in a blue moon. Um, funny saying. Anyway, I thought it was funny. You didn't, so let's just move on from there. <laughs> so, so the mercy seat in the Old Testament, we saw a picture of it before, um, corresponds to the throne of grace in the New Testament. And really, in the Old Testament, if the priest did everything right, there wasn't any judgment. Uh, they found mercy too for, for the high priest, for himself, and for all the people. In the New Testament, we say, if only I can do everything right. Well, Jesus has done everything right for us. Let us therefore come boldly. You see that? Uh, many Christians know it in their head, but they don't know it in their heart as a revelation. I say, um, was it a couple of weeks ago I made reference to it that sometimes Sunday morning just seems to be all out uh, declaration of war and suddenly everything goes wrong, the kids play up and 
Mum and dad have a, scra a fight on the way down to church, and then some people have been known to come as far as the door and turn around again. We can't go in there now because our attitude is not right. And, and you know, we understand the heart in it all, but it still lacks understanding because if we confess our sins, sorry, Lord, we been scrapping and when we shouldn't have asked ask you to forgive us, then we come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help for our marriage and for our family and for all the things that we're struggling with, for our financial area, for everything that we're struggling with, we're finding mercy and grace to help. Grace to help in time of need. And one Bible scholar insists that that phrase, the in time of need, was a colloquial expression and the most equivalent uh, in, the, in our day, they will be in the nick of time. Find grace to help in the nick of time. So in other words, I don't need 45 minutes to work my way into the presence of God, so to speak, when I need help. I say, God, I need help right now. In the nick of time, there's grace to help in time of need. So God still wants to meet with us there. There is in speech marks and underlined. What is that? Well, in the Old Testament, it was the mercy seat. In the New Testament, it's the, the throne of God, uh, the throne of grace. Um, he still wants to speak to us from above the mercy seat. I wonder if we can put up that image again of that, uh, of that ark. Um, all we see is what was physically made. God says he would appear to Moses in fact, he basically dwelled uh, in this place. And, you know, the, the Jews used to call it the Shekinah glory. It's um, not so much a biblical term as it is a Jewish term that they made reference to the glory of God that was visible in a haze, uh, in a cloud, and in a light. And God says, I will appear to you from above the mercy seat. So in other words, what we see here is what was physically made. What we don't see is that above the angels, there was a light, there was a cloud, and that was the presence of God. And God says to Moses, I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. And sadly, many Christians, when they come before God, in their mind it's the throne of Judgment. God says, I'm not speaking to you from the throne of judgment. I'm speaking to you from the throne of mercy. I'm speaking to you from the throne of grace. If I come into the presence of God and I'm all, I've beaten myself up and I've had condemnation and so forth, I don't hear anything from God because I haven't, I haven't come boldly to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. I'm coming now in what I haven't done. I don't know if this helps anybody. So every time when we approach God by the blood of Jesus, through the journey of worship, we should expect to meet with Him and to hear Him speak with us from the throne of grace. The Sunday service is not just an opportunity to sing a few songs to hear a little sermon and go home again, but it is an opportunity to come before the throne of grace through the journey of worship and to receive from God and to receive wisdom for the challenges ahead, to receive grace to help for what lies ahead tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month, and everything to receive answers. And sadly, many people come and go and never receive anything because their mind is filled with condemnation. They're beating themselves up. Many people don't even make it through the doors because they don't think that they're good enough. And the reality is none of us are good enough. Jesus was good enough on our behalf. Let me wrap this thing up now that I'm almost run out of time again. Oh, my goodness. I want to briefly talk about another aspect uh, of the glory and the presence of God. The two of them are synonymous terms for the same thing. We're talking about the manifest presence that you can see, that you can feel. Um, and uh, sometimes people have made reference that they have smelled a fragrance of the presence of God. Uh, and sometimes people don't see, but they know in their knower that God's in the house. 
Um, and as I said, there's different facets to it. We might well get into that at some point. But for now, let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I should say, verse 12. Uh, Paul speaking, he says, Because we have this hope, we are very bold. All right, here's that real boldness again. Now, we, Paul's not talking about approaching the presence of God. Paul's talking about preaching the gospel and preaching the word of God. He says, we are very bold, he says. Um, we are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel could not see the brightness fade and disappear. Their minds indeed were closed. To this very day, their minds are covered with the same veil as they read the books of the Old Covenant. The veil is removed only when a person is joined to Christ. Uh, even today, whenever they read the law of Moses, the veil still covers their minds, but it can be removed, as the Scripture says about Moses. His veil was removed when he turned to the Lord. Verse 17, now the Lord in this passage is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. Verse 18, Then all of us then reflect the glory of the Lord with uncovered faces, and that same glory coming from the Lord, who is the Spirit, transforms us into His likeness in an ever greater, to an ever, or in an ever greater degree of glory. Let me quickly give you a background understanding of what Paul's talking about here. Prior to the building of the tabernacle, Moses was up on the mountain, uh, spent 40 days and 40 nights up there, received all the instructions concerning the tabernacle, the layout, the materials, the concepts, the whole works. 40 days, 40 nights. The Bible says he didn't eat or drink. It was absolutely a supernatural time that he had in the presence of God. When he came down, the Bible says that his face shone like that of an angel. So in other words, there was an impartation taking place uh, when Moses was in the presence of God. But he didn't know it had happened because he is by himself. Uh, he comes down, comes to the people. As he comes to the foot of the mountain, here is the camp in the valley. Uh, there is Aaron, there is Hur, there's all these leaders and the 70 elders. They saw Moses and they ran away. They were scared of him because his face shone like that of an angel. Now, many of you would remember reading in the New Testament when Jesus was up on a mountain with Peter, James and John called the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, the Bible says a cloud covered them. That's the glory cloud. And from that cloud, God spoke saying, This is my beloved Son uh, in whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face uh, shone like that of an angel. So in other words, uh, the, the God on the inside of Jesus, it's like uh, God pulled back the flesh and let him see who was really in there. That Jesus wasn't just 100% man, he was also 100% God and shone through. But you see, when we spend time in the presence, we have God on the inside of us. And there is a way to increase uh, the, the, the measure of God on the inside of us so much so that our face begins to shine. And with some Christians, you can see it. You can see the glory on, on, on their face. And you can see, well, anyway, what happened here was quite supernatural. Moses came down. His face shone. They all ran away. He called out to them and said, it's me, it's me. You all come here. I've heard from God. I need to talk to you. Anyway, they were terrified. So the Bible says that Moses put a veil over his uh, over his um, uh, face. We, we're not used to seeing men with veils. You know, when ladies get married and they typically have a veil somewhere over their face, somehow, well, Moses had one of them veils uh, just to cover his face, presumably see-through, so he was still able to move around, but so that the glory couldn't shine through because it freaked the people out. Um, and, and, and we are told that when Moses went back to his tent again, and God came down to talk to him and stood at the entrance and Moses was inside. He took the veil off. When he came back out, he put the veil back on again. And that's what Paul says. That even in the Old Testament, he says, at the reading of the Old Testament books uh, of the Old Covenant, there's a veil that lies over the people's minds and hearts and makes reference to the same veil. It obscured the truth. And when Moses turned around and he went into the presence of God and he turned to the Lord, he took the veil off. When you and I turned to Jesus Christ, the veil was removed. And we can now clearly see 
We have now capacity to receive revelation that was not possible in, in the Old Testament. And uh, so, so he says, when, when you turn to the Lord, he says that veil is removed. And, uh, and uh, basically to pick up on verse 17, he says, Now the Lord in this passage is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is present, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the constraints and to some extent from the bondage of the Ten Commandments and all the Old Testament laws, food laws, all the ceremonial laws, the whole work says deliver from that and freedom from condemnation that we can now come boldly to the throne of grace and no longer having any, any sense of having failed or, or, or any of these things. Um, interesting, as we study that passage here when it says, uh, it says where the Spirit of the Lord is present, um, Bible scholars talk about the Spirit of God present. They're talking about the, the, the manifest presence of God, not just the existence of God. We know that God exists. And we know that God is everywhere. And Peter so aptly explained that last week that there is the omnipresence of God, which is everywhere, but there is the manifest presence, which is only there in a, in a particular uh, location. And of course, our prayer is that the manifest presence go the length and the breadth of our country. That's why we are praying for the outpouring of the Spirit, The people so come under the influence of the Holy Spirit as they did in revivals of old, where people in the streets fall down and they are so aware of God's presence that they lie down with and, 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 and like repent right there. Um, and so uh, Bible scholars speak of, of the presence of the Lord that is manifest rather than of the existence. So what does that mean? Well, it means there's freedom. We always know when God's in the house, when there's a freedom in praise and worship, when there's a liberty, people can freely express themselves. We know God's in the house. When people are all tied up and don't want to move, it means that, it means that God has not fully manifest His presence. We, we, we draw near to Him, He draws near to us. But here's what I'm wanting to lead up, uh, is to say this in verse 18, that all of us reflect the glory of the Lord with uncovered faces. And that same glory coming from the Lord, who is that Spirit? He transforms us into His likeness in an ever greater degree of glory. When Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain, he came down looking like God in a sense, like a measure, like with the glory of, of God shining from him, reflecting, if you like, from him. He spent time in the glory and in the presence of God that transferred into him. And when he came down, that's what people saw. They didn't see Moses anymore. They saw God inside of Moses, if you like. Okay. Now, of course, we know Old Testament, God didn't live inside people. He lives inside New Testament. So, friend, there is an, an, a, a deal available for believers to come into the presence and into the glory of God and to worship God and to let Him so fill us and there be such an impartation of His Spirit that we can reflect that to a dying world around us, that they can see that we are the God people because we are shining forth God. We are shining forth the love of God. We are shining forth the character of God and we are being transformed. And they were transformed there. It's the same word that is used when it speaks about that we are transformed by the renewing of the mind. And it speaks there in the Greek of a metamorphosis, which is the process that is explained when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. That we can turn from what we used to be, the old, what Paul calls the old man, the flesh, with all of its deeds and all of its character flaws and everything, that we are transformed and changed into the very image of God. You can tell people that have been in the presence of God. They come away changed. Each time men become, it's an opportunity to be transformed and changed. Let me quickly wrap this up. There's two agencies, if I can use that expression, two agencies that we see in the Word of God that are agencies of change for our lives, agencies of transformation. The first one is the Word of God. Hebrew, um, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 
says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And of course, that's the word of God that renews our mind. And there's a transformation that takes place. But that passage was never spoken in isolation to being transformed in the presence of God, in the, in the, in the, in the presence of God's Spirit, which is that second aspect of transformational agency that God has available for every single one of us. Many of us, and we could have a testimony time like right now, and go around and say, tell me the last time you really had an encounter with God, did you walk away the same that you were before? And we would say, no, something happened on the inside of me. There was a shifting that took place. There was a taking out of the old and a giving of the new. God took away shame and he gave me confidence. God took away hatred and he gave me love. God took away this and he gave me that. And there was a shifting and a rearranging and God improves us, our whole being. Our whole being is we consistently come into the presence of God. Just one other opportunity to just close our eyes, and God's already here, and allow the Spirit of God to transform us and to transfer into our lives that which is missing. If there's anything missing, God will replenish that. God will make that up. The Bible speaks of a need to constantly be filled with the Spirit. It wouldn't make sense, even in the natural. If I have a glass of water and I want to fill it with a jug that is filled with water, if I go to the source... I can fill my glass of water. And in the same way, if I want to be filled with the Spirit of God, I need to go right to source and come right into the presence of God and allow Him to fill us. Let's 